You're listening to The Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. This podcast was created and produced by MK and Associates and your host, Mike King. Hello, one and all. Please come in and join us for a smorgasbord of news and analysis. In part two, we'll be focusing on all the latest air cargo news and freight rate stories. But first, we'll be turning our attention to container shipping. As interest rates continue to be raised, what's going on with demand? How is union action on the US West Coast impacting the contracting season? And is it too optimistic to hope for a peak season this year? Joining me today is Zenith's Emily Staussball, TAC Index's Pete Burnett, Lodestar publisher Alex Lenane, and container shipping stalwart, it's John McCown. The news uh, a couple of days ago of this new bill would be a game changer and uh, specifically says that the goal is to remove antitrust immunity. I'm not a lawyer, but it's at a distance, it seems like perhaps one of the goals um, of that is to roll back the, the ability to have alliances. Hello, everybody. I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Hearty hellos to you all. If you happen to have stumbled across this podcast by accident and quickly realised that, like a young and feisty Billy Idol, you want more, 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 apologies for that, I couldn't resist, then you can get exactly that on your podcast platform of choice. Please follow us, review and subscribe. You can also listen to us at thelodestar.com, which doubles as a relentless purveyor of the world's best and breaking supply chain shipping and freight news, as I'm sure you know already. In a wee bit, we're going all in on air freight, when I'm joined by Lodestar publisher Alex Lane and Peyton Burnett, Managing Director of TAC Index. But first up, we're turning our attention to container shipping, which is never out of the news at the moment. And to analyse what's been going on, I'd like to welcome a returning and much appreciated contributor to the Lodestar podcast. He's a senior container shipping executive with decades of experience, a celebrated author, the founder of Blue Alpha Capital and the current non-resident senior fellow at the Centre for Maritime Strategy. What a roll call. It's the one and only John McCann. Welcome back, John. Thank you. Pleased to be here, Mike. And joining John today for her first appearance in this shire is Zenator market analyst Emily Stousball. Stousball. Which one is it, Emily? Thanks for having me. I'll answer to both. Thank you, Emily. That's uh, very generous of you. Uh, I think I've probably got a 100% record of getting Scandinavian pronunciations wrong. But really, thank you very much for coming on today. John, if I may turn to you first, let's have a look at demand. Not least because you provide some very detailed and excellent analysis of US imports each month. The overall macroeconomic picture, I would say, at the moment, it's definitely looking a bit brighter We've got economists that were previously predicting we'd have major recessions by now. They're now wondering if we'll even see a hard landing. But at the same time, inflation, it's not going away. We're seeing tight labor markets in Europe and North America. Prices are continuing to rise for all sorts of things. As a result, we're still seeing interest rate rises from central banks, most recently from the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve in late March. So how are you seeing all of this in the U.S. and how this plays out where consumers are still buying things? Well, in the container space, we're seeing a lot of recent weakness. Certainly, if you look at the year-over-year figures, um, in February, 
the most recent U.S. imports were actually down 28% versus last year. That was an expansion of the 17% reduction we saw in January. And it's literally the fifth straight month of double-digit year-over-year reductions. But the important thing to kind of put that into context, that's uh, some tough comparisons versus last year, where we were seeing very big increases. One of the things that I like to look at is just what is that increase versus or change versus, say, four years ago, February of 2019, which was before any of the impact of COVID. But even versus then, we're down about 6%. So we're seeing a lot of weakness in that measure in the U.S., even stronger on the West Coast. West Coast was down 37% in February year over year. And the U.S. data is similar to what's actually stronger than what's going on worldwide. The most recent credible data, I think, is the January worldwide container volume data put out by the CTS folks, and that was down about 10%. So you can kind of see a delta in the U.S. in terms of this softness. Uh, really, the same thing we saw on the way up. Uh, the U.S. had had higher volume growth than the rest of the world. So that's really kind of what's going on with demand. So, I mean, we're talking significantly down even compared to that pre-COVID period, or certainly compared to last year. A lot of retailers have been talking in their financial quarterlies about finding it tough to shift these high inventory levels. How important is that to that drop in imports, John? Have you got any insight on that? That's a, playing a role. It's kind of beyond my capability of, of how much of a role, but U.S. inventories are higher. I think the latest figures from the U.S. have have inventories in January were about 11% over the same time the year ago. Inventory to sales ratio was up about half as much. So some of that weakness, perhaps a good part of it, is kind of inventory adjustment. So it's really too early to tell what that is saying. I guess my observation would be, though, the, the longer we see these pretty major reductions, the more we're kind of getting into something that's beyond inventory reduction. And, and perhaps uh, not to use the R word, but containers, I've always thought in more normal times are kind of a fairly timely pulse of what's going on with the economy of tangible things. And like I say, it uh, might be starting to signal that there's more softness out there than we'd like to see. Could be a bellwether, might not be. Someone said to me the other day that we're not in a recession, but maybe we're in a freight recession. So we'll see how that plays out. Emily, how's this looking in terms of spot and contract rates on those major shipping lanes into the US East and West Coast? Well, I think perhaps predictively from what we've just heard, they're not looking great if you're, if you're looking at it from a carrier's perspective. We're back just under now for the first time in a very long time at under $1,300 per 40-foot container from the Far East to the US West Coast, which is quite a milestone to have reached and under 2,200 if you're looking at going into the East Coast. So definitely we've seen a slowdown in the, in the pace of decreases, right? If you compare to a year ago, these rates are now down close to 80% from where they were this time last year. But there's, there's obviously much less room left to fall. Uh, and we're seeing at Zanetta, we also pay attention to the mid-low and the mid-high rates, right? So the 25th percentile and the 75th. And we've seen that 25th percentile into the West Coast fall to $1,100. And when you put that into perspective, that the majority of shippers on that mid-low rate, they're the big shippers with the biggest volumes. So carriers are actually facing that $1,100 rate more so than you would see from just the simple average that gets you to $1,300 on an average spot rate. The long-term market, as you would expect, is a little bit slower. We're still about $1,000 per container higher on long-term rates and spot rates into the West Coast. 
But again, you've got this contracting season that we're really looking towards now with a lot of our shippers tendering and getting those new rates in, doing their bid rounds and figuring out how low they can go. And from what we've seen in Far East and North Europe, which are much earlier in their tendering process, the big shippers there are getting down within line to spot rates. So that's certainly a target for what big shippers into the US should be looking for, those those kind of equal to spot rate levels. We're seeing those contract rates catching up with yeah. those spot rates. And it's obviously it happens gradually, but we have a lot of new contracts we know will start on 1st of May and will really drive that decline in long-term rates as well. Emily, just on that Asia-Europe trade that you mentioned there, where's things been going there on rates and volume levels? Has the drop-off been as severe as it has been on the Trans-Pacific or into the US East Coast, US West Coast? So in terms of rates, the answer is quite basically yes. There might not be the exact percentage change, but we've seen that similar just collapse in in spot and and now contract rates. In terms of volumes, so far this year, and and that's the CTS data we have for January, Europe has actually outperformed the US, which for me, I haven't been in container shipping for as long as John, but that's the first time I've seen imports into Europe. They're not performing better than into the US, but they're doing less poorly. And I think that's something to do also with just how high that surge in volume into the US was. And that just didn't happen into the Europe. So they've been more, more steady on their imports. But their two spot rates are down under $1,600 per, per 40-foot container, with contract rates at about 2300 So there's certainly those same kind of declines for carriers, despite volumes falling off slightly less. And how are lines reacting to this? Are we seeing... Big capacity cuts on that Trans-Pacific or the Asia-Europe, is there a difference between the two trades? There's quite a big difference, actually. When you look at the first 10 weeks of the year, Asia to Europe is, is actually only down by about 2% in terms of capacity. Whereas on the Trans-Pacific into the West Coast, we're down by about 15%. And that's carriers removing more capacity there. Still not enough to make up for those huge demand declines that John was talking about, but considerably more than um, Far East to North Europe. And, and again, that changes a little bit by carrier. We've done some interesting analysis on the 2M alliance, especially since their announcement on, on the breakup. But on the Trans-Pacific there, we've really seen a shift that the 2M partners, so MASC and MSC, especially MSC, has been adding a lot more non-alliance capacity to the Trans-Pacific, right? So about half the total capacity now offered by MASC and MSC is now part of their alliance, while the majority of the rest is MSC sailing on their own services and not wanting to put it into those alliance slots. So some of this extra capacity that MSC is putting in, is that replacing some of these smaller carriers that have been forced out by higher charter rates, perhaps? So we've certainly seen the sort of smaller charters disappear. We've also now starting to really see carriers moving towards changing their services rather than just continuously blanking capacity, kind of trying to help shippers and, and no longer say, you know, we haven't sailed this service since December, but officially it's still running. And we're now really starting to see those new announcements of new services and then readjust to this new demand picture. John, that Trans-Pacific contract season, it's now upon us. You've been at the coalface over the years on this. Can you tell our listeners a bit about what happens in these negotiations between carriers and shippers? How does this contractual dance play out, if I can put it like that? Well, I'm, I'm sure it'd be, a, be great to be a fly on the wall on some of those meetings because um, I, I think uh, it, almost the opposite of what occurred maybe a couple of years ago is going on. Certainly the shippers are looking at the spot rates and taking the spot rates that make their case the most and putting those in front of the carriers, just like the carriers did the opposite a couple of years ago. So I think obviously the shippers are in a better position. It'll be interesting to, you know, and this is a disproportionate number of the contracts um, recur here. I saw some data recently that suggested in this 
four-month period, like 50% of the contracts come up March through June, with April, May being the biggest. And that's a lot of contracts, but that's also one-third of the month. So the contracts come up throughout the year. The real importance in this time is the big retailers. And, and what I've always thought uh, or understood is that, uh, and, and among those, the three biggest shippers into the U.S., I think in this order, are Walmart, Home Depot, and Target. And they're all tied into the Christmas selling season. So whatever kind of comes about with their contract, presumably to each of those carriers, that's a bit of a benchmark. It's probably fair to say that you'd be hard-pressed to find many shippers that have a better rate than Walmart. So I think that's always been the importance uh, in my mind that it kind of sets a benchmark for the carriers themselves. The carriers have that information internally, other people don't. So I think that's the real importance. Emily, how are you seeing people positioning themselves for these negotiations? I mean, obviously there's been a lot of water under the bridge over the last two years. So I've got, I, can't, I can imagine there's a few personal relationships that are a bit difficult. What are you guys seeing at Zenita? No, that's for sure. And we're also seeing shippers uh, looking at this, this straddled market and trying to figure out, you know, how do we best play it? Obviously, it's not possible or feasible for everybody to move on to the spot market until they come back in line and they're willing to pay the long-term rate. But some have been trying to see, okay, can we move some amounts of our volumes? Others have been able to delay their contract renewal. So they've extended their previous contracts and are waiting until they can get rates that are low enough because they see the market falling. Others are still looking to shorten the long-term contracts if they have to, the bandwidth to do quarterly rather than yearly contracts. And then we also have this, this concept of indexing and trying to make sure you're not locked into a rate that then suddenly is far too high. Because especially in these economic times, you don't want to be paying $1,000 more than your competitor for a container, right? That, that makes a huge difference these days. It strikes me that the carriers also aren't without some leverage in this season. I mean, again, the, the pendulum is swung to the shippers, but I just I find myself wondering, I don't think it's going to necessarily be the same um, slugfest maybe that it has been in previous years, because I think that everybody's aware of what happened in the past couple of years. And I imagine the carriers on their side are focusing on probably saying the whole contract market is very different. And probably uh, shippers, I think, realize that they want to be viewed as a stable customer. You know, the, God forbid there's another capacity shortage. And I think, quite frankly, we're going to have tighter capacity going forward. I think shippers are, are more appreciative than ever that they want to be on the good list, if you will, of carriers. Uh, you know, they don't want to be, it's almost kind of a downside of having the lowest rates is that Everything else equal, that kind of becomes, if a carrier's in a triage situation, that becomes the rate that you might roll to the next voyage. And so I think there's been a, a subtle, perhaps even more than subtle, change in the dynamics. And I think there's more appreciation, perhaps, on the part of shippers that uh, what's most important to me is stable, consistent service, and that I'm not going to be subject to um, being kind of left behind. And that also comes from the rest of the company, right? It's a higher up level that have been exposed to the possible risks. Exactly. So we know there are shippers who aren't going down that line and who are really taking the situation to saying, you really screwed us over last year and now it's our turn. But there are others who are getting that pressure from above that actually cost savings isn't the be all and end all. We need that consistency, not necessarily because it's a problem this year, but because it might recur in the future. And I think shippers are well aware that, that carriers, and I, I think uh, it, there's a general view that carriers will be more aggressive in capacity management and blanking ceilings. I mean, we're already seeing that. 
I was struck that we're seeing increasing news items about more permanent reductions, you know, of services canceled. There was an earnings call the other day where the CFO of one of the carriers um, suggested below a certain rate, we're just not going to have a service. And so I think that there's more of an awareness that there's going to be more aggressive action by carriers. And from carrier standpoint, they recognized that it was that tightness and capacity versus demand that created the rate environment that was better than they've ever seen. So there's a, I mean, it's a fascinating at a, at a distance to back away and kind of look at the past couple of years and the extraordinary earnings and really kind of realize, well, at a time where shippers experienced the worst service they've ever experienced, profits have been better than they've ever experienced. Now, there's not a, a cause and effect, but I think that translates into more aggressive capacity management going forward. I think we're going to see uh, quite a few freight procurement professionals who've had to deliver the bad news over the last few years into boardrooms now going back with some good news and being very happy about doing so. I want to just look at one other factor in these negotiations. We've got this ongoing failure of the PMA and the ILWU union to strike a new master contract for dock workers at US West Coast ports. Is this, as some have suggested, having an effect on these talks? At the moment, we've seen multiple reports of productivity losses over things like lunch breaks at terminals in the LA Long Beach complex. This came up at TPM 23, as we covered in the last podcast. These contract talks, Emily, and you can probably expound more on this than I can, they often include routings as well as rate levels and volumes. Is this delayed resolution of this union contract, is it pushing people to insist on eastern routings as opposed to going through those West Coast ports that are affected by these? productivity losses? Partly. But I think there is also, we've spoken to a lot of shippers who have made this move permanently, who have decided to invest in East Coast infrastructure, in warehouses, in facilities they need there, and have decided that, yes, there's still the risk on the West Coast, but even once that passes, we've made the decision to go through the East Coast. There are still shippers out there who are waiting to move back to the West Coast based on these contract negotiations and others that never really moved the substantial part of their volumes that are waiting to see what happens. But I don't think we should overestimate how many are going to then return fully to the West Coast once this risk passes. It's a more permanent move. Also, when you look in the past, in the recent years, right, infrastructure investments on a national scale and government investments have been much higher into East Coast ports than West Coast ports. So this isn't just because of the congestion and the current negotiations. It's a more structural shift. Emily is correct. She hit the nail on the head. I mean, there's been a, a rather consistent long-term eastward shift in where containers come into the U.S. I think February was actually the 21st straight month that the East Coast uh, performed better than the West Coast in year over year. And that goes back to first the congestion and more recently the talks. But those decisions are being made by shippers um, Regardless of the talks, uh, most of the big shippers already have rates to move things East Coast. But again, that's an underlying shift that's been going on for a long time. From, uh, by my calculations, from 2000 to 2015, there was about a 57 basis point per year shift from West Coast to East Coast. And today, I think the mix is um, uh, 57% of the inbound containers come into the U.S., and 43% come into the West Coast. But if you look at the population, in the end, containers go to where people are. Only about 24% of the U.S. population is closer to the West Coast. 76 are closer to the 
on the, the East Coast and the Gulf Coast. So from a cost standpoint, from an emission standpoint, even now from a congestion standpoint, that's the most efficient. What the West Coast intermodal, almost half of the cargo that comes over the West Coast goes long distances by double stack trains, sometimes all the way across the East Coast. That does have a time advantage, and some people want that. But from a cost or emission standpoint, that difference has been going on for a while. It accelerated with the Panama Canal, and, and it'll continue, quite frankly, I think, for a bit. And I think when looking at rates, right, when, when congestion was at its highest, we saw a several thousand dollar difference between rates into the West Coast compared to the East Coast. That's now come right back down to on the way it was in 2019. So it's becoming, there's not no longer that much more expensive to go to the East Coast as it was just a year, a year and a half ago. Well, it's interesting at the very beginning of container, or when double stack came around, 80% of the containers coming into the US came over the West Coast. And the simple reason they did that was that the conferences at the time established the same exact price to move a load, say from Far East to New York, the same price to move it intermodal, where it's eight days quicker, versus the same price of moving it all water. So if you're a shipper and you're given the same exact price, when one, one alternative is eight days quicker, or at that time it was probably 15 days quicker, it's a fairly simple example. But if you look at the underlying cost, the more water by definition, I mean, water miles are, are geometrically lower than land miles, even double stack. Thank you both. If we can just look at container line strategy, we've got the 2M is splitting up. We've obviously got these different strategies you mentioned earlier between Maersk and MSC. We've got carriers sitting on a lot of cash looking at uh, much poorer returns moving forwards on these contract rates and the spot rates. We're seeing some lines slashing capacity and others are keeping most of their fleets in play. We're seeing some buying ships, others buying airlines. Are these seemingly disparate actions and strategies part of a bigger change? Uh, is this some sort of evolution of container shipping into something new or something that we haven't seen before? John, have you seen this before? Yeah, yes, I, it's it's kind of a replay in, in what Maersk is doing, and Maersk is a very different approach going for the MSC, but this is very similar to what Maersk did 20, 25 years ago, just kind of expanding a, a little bit different modes, but is to build themselves into handling your logistics, whether it's by, by water or by air. MSC, on the other hand, seems to be, um, it was fascinating. I mean, MSC and other carriers are, even in the past week, stories of people ordering additional vessels. MSC continues to buy used vessels that come up for sale. So it seems like MSC is more kind of doubling down on growth and growth, uh, presumably through offering a service that has some lower costs from a whole bunch of very large ships and so more core container shipping where some of the others are branching out. And I guess, quite frankly, I think some of the ones, the investments are in part a response to the profits are being reinvested in the business. Some of them, I think, are mindful that it helps with perhaps even their regulators, their various countries that we're reinvesting in the business. Emily, do you want to add anything to that? Well, I think I would just add that, that it is, you know, as you mentioned, carriers have an awful, awful lot of cash on hand. So they can get through this year. They can get through next year, which we expect to be, to be just as tough. And then they're really trying to position themselves, especially somebody like MSC, for when the market turns. And then they can be in that position where they have market share and they have the ability to earn huge amounts of money. 
I know IF freight analysts here at Zanetta have their own theories about the attractiveness of freight to market um, for these carriers coming in, especially as we've seen recently that air freight companies have really been struggling. But I'll leave that for that topic for them. But it's clear that they're all trying to figure out, okay, how do I position myself to make money? Either now when the market's falling, as I think Mask is, is more aware of, or like tending towards MSC, where you're thinking, yes, this is going to be bad, but we'll be in a great place once the market turns. John, I remember that, that period, what, 20 odd years ago when OOCL, they had a logistics arm, APL had a logistics, everyone had a logistics arm or a forwarding arm. It didn't really work. But I, it feels a little bit different to me now. A lot more consolidation, I would say. There's also actually one of the other things that's very different is the regulatory environment. Certainly, if you look at the aim towards reducing emissions, European legislators agreed in March to accelerate the switch to green maritime fuels and cut 80% of emissions by 2050, which is a significant acceleration compared to what the IMO has been saying it will do. Another regulatory challenge in this new container shipping environment is in the US, we've already got the Ocean Shipping Reform Act of 2022, which addressed, amongst other things, detention and demorage and access to capacity for exporters. We've now got this bipartisan Ocean Shipping Antitrust Enforcement Act in the works. This looks like it might have the potential to repeal antitrust immunity, which I think it would be a game changer, I would say. Does this regulatory chessboard, is this something we've seen carriers face before? Not really. The news uh, a couple of days ago of this new bill would be a game changer and specifically says that the goal is to remove antitrust immunity. Well, I guess this is to look at it in a longer term is basically rolling back what was given to the industry. And I'm not a lawyer, but it's at a distance. It seems like perhaps one of the goals um, of that is to kind of roll back the ability to have alliances. Reading through everything, it doesn't specifically say that, but it looks like if they pull the immunity, that's what it's really targeted. And I know that in Europe, the regulatory framework for the alliances, I think, had a term to it. And I think it's coming up in 2024. And a lot of people were already saying that that was perhaps going to be challenged. So it looks like the U.S. is looking to do that. And, and yeah, that would be major. The other thing the bill had was to give the FMC, which is the regulatory agency, to give them a say on any consolidation. And my speculation is that's kind of tied in. I guess one would say if alliances weren't allowed, the view might be that there might be some carriers that want to combine legally so that they can achieve the same thing. And perhaps the bill's authors are saying, well, we want to have the ability to say whether that combination would be allowed. Now, I guess the U.S. antitrust agency already has that, but this seems to be injecting the FMC into it. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with that bill. But yeah, you're, you're right. That would be a game changer. The other thing that I think even before, and that would be such a big game changer, but one of the things I've been proposing or suggesting, and it is more of a minor thing, but really is more kind of information that would be readily available to people. And what I'm thinking is in terms of information on actual historical pricing. I think my own view is that in the U.S., the SEC basically doesn't say if something's good or bad. They basically just say that investors need to have information in front of them. I think it'd be very useful to have factual information on, say, pricing indexes 
by major trade lane on a monthly basis uh, disclosed where somebody can go and readily get that information to give them kind of a real benchmark of what's going on. And I say that that shouldn't be challenged because that information is already available on this entity CTS is owned by all the carriers and they provide all of that information on a very granular trade lane basis every month, like 30 days after the end of the month. To get that data, you have to pay a fee. But it just seems to me that since that data is already made available, the carriers can't argue that it's uh, confidential. And it just seems like it'd be very useful to have that data at some accessible website on the FMC or some other place where it's just factual information on volume and, and average pricing on an index basis. Just kind of somewhat levels the playing field on the real information. Well, we'll see how that develops and you can follow all of these regulatory challenges and rates and everything else that's going on in the world of container shipping on the lodestar.com. Right now, we're turning our attention to the air cargo industry when I'm joined by the Lodestar's Alex Lenane and TAC Index's Peyton Burnett. But for now, John McCown, Emily Stausbol, thanks for joining me today on the Lodestar podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much, Mike. Let's turn now to air cargo. And to do that, I'm joined by two people who know a thing or two about freighters. It's Lodestar publisher Alex Lenane and TAC Index MD Peyton Burnett. Welcome both. Hi, Mike. Hi, Mike. I think let's start with outrage because I'm quite outraged by this story. I know you've been following it closely, Alex. Just a bit of context. I'm sure most of our listeners will be aware that there's been horrific earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. We had massive earthquakes in February. There's been loads of aftershocks, over 50,000 confirmed deaths. The logistics industry has really responded well to this with a great humanitarian relief effort. But those who are doing these good works are not particularly happy about the attitude of insurance companies when it comes to deliveries to Syria. Please do explain, Alex, what they're up to or what they should be doing better. Well, we were approached by a couple of airlines who were doing relief flights into Syria in particular. Apparently, normally you, you pay an extra 2000 to $5,000 for a sort of war insurance premium. But they were being quoted $10,000. And as, as the emergency got greater and the demand actually went up, they were then being told that it was going to be $50,000 just for the insurance premium on the flight. Now, they, they spoke to the insurance companies, and we've tried to speak to the insurance companies, and they're not saying anything. They were accused of pretty poor behavior. I won't use quite the words that I heard. But they were accused of really um, a sort of gouging really when it was a humanitarian crisis and that the airlines sort of said that they they just couldn't really afford to give that money away and so they had to take it from the customers the customers being charities and that there's people who really had to pay the, the survivors of the earthquake which seems harsh really so the disappointing thing really was that insurance companies wouldn't get back in touch with us to justify why it was so expensive to fly to syria I, I actually heard similar in Kathmandu. I was airside during that relief effort after those earthquakes in 2015. And there was certainly some people making a lot of money out of that relief effort. But Syria is a, a different sort of case. Is any of this linked to sanctions? Yes, it is. And that does make it more complicated. So the companies had to prove that they weren't benefiting the Syrian government in any way, that they weren't getting fuel from Syria. There were quite a few more hoops to jump through. And, you know, some people said that is just the price that you have to pay. But I don't know, it seems that the world's a bit of a bonkers place when that's the case. 
Peyton, uh, have you got a different view on this? I know you're very well acquainted to how these things work. Is this sensible business from insurers or is it outrageous profiteering like we're possibly suggesting? <laughs> well, I spoke with all my insurance contacts and they just said it, it is what it is. But the insurance company's business models essentially run off one word, which is risk. They model premiums are on the chance of loss. And sadly, business in Syria is currently very high risk. Then they try to profiteer, then other companies may take their place in the market. So it's unfortunate, but it's more than likely a sensible reflection of their risk models and not really an attempt to make a fast buck. Now, that's being said, that's coming from my lawyers in the insurance market. So you can read that as you may. But the lawyers tend to be a bit more neutral in the market. And the lawyer I was talking to in particular uh, normally does try to stand up for the small guy. So he's just saying, I'm afraid it is what it is. I'm sure all our listeners are overwhelmed with sympathy for all those insurers because <laughs> everyone loves an insurance company, don't they? Hopefully this will be resolved. Alex, please, on the next podcast, if you hear that there's any, any good news from insurers, please come back and tell us all about it. I will. I wouldn't hold your breath, though, Mike. No. Okay. Better news, Alex. Hong Kong volumes have been uh, given a boost by the relaxation of transshipment rules. Is that correct? Yeah, it's, it's a silly little story, really, but it did catch my eye. So in, in Hong Kong, obviously a big transshipment place, vapes and like those sort of smoking products aren't actually cigarettes. You haven't been allowed to transship them by land before and given they're made in Guangzhou and then taken by land over to Hong Kong and then flown out. From April, this uh, rule has been relaxed. According to the Hong Kong Forwarders Association, that's about 30,000 tonnes of cargo, or so they say about 10% of Hong Kong's exports. So they're all quite pleased because Hong Kong's had a really hard time recently, and it's just more stuff that can be shipped through Hong Kong rather than Singapore or anywhere else. So just a nice little fillip for the Hong Kong export market. But I think Peyton will know a lot more about that than I do. What's that market like at the moment, Peyton? What's, uh, you know, Hong Kong, but other Asia destinations? How is it holding up? Well, I'm in Hong Kong at the moment, so I managed to chat with a few guys at the cold face. I think January and February uh, were tougher. Had a, had a good march out of both Hong Kong and Shanghai. Heavily weighted towards e-commerce, and this is in the quarter rush, so to speak. General cargo is still sluggish, so thick garments and the likes. We're looking at Q2 as being still a bit unstable, but they're looking quite positive for Q3 onwards. The actual markets for, say, China to Europe in, in sort of both directions is looking relatively stable. But on Transpac, I think the number of the participants in the market in Q4 last year got a bit unstuck. And so there's a little bit of reluctance to enter into long-term contracts. But there are other sort of players in the market trying to take their space. But there's a bit of a pun on Transpac for Q3, Q4 this year. Peyton, what are you hearing about where the market goes next? We've had all this belly hole capacity being added. Is this starting to hurt freighter operators? Are they optimistic for later in the year? They're still optimistic later in the year. I think generally, as more capacity comes on the market, there is downward pressure. But I, I think there's still one of the things that's making it uncertain for the rest of the year is that the airlines are still holding back on their passenger flights and somewhat limiting the capacity coming on the market. So they're a bit worried that 
when you get later on in the year, they'll suddenly rush and put on a whole pile of extra flights, which will push down, say, the pricing or access to premium charters and the like. So that's where some of the wariness is coming in. But as I, as I stated earlier, transatlantic belly is looking pretty good, not pretty stable. And the same goes with China, Europe and Europe, China. Slightly more bearish market, Alex, but we're still seeing some new entrants, aren't they? They're not being d- deterred. No, no. I went to Billund last week in the middle of Denmark to um, watch a plane take off, as journalists happily get to do from time to time. And um, yeah, it was a Maersk Air cargo. They had one over from uh, Miami. They were launching their route to China, just outside Shanghai, where they're going to be doing, I think, 12 times a week, but within the next couple of months. And they seem very bullish, frankly. They say that they've got enough shipper customers that they don't need to sort of bother with the general market that the, their customers are already in place. So about a third of it's on long-term contracts, third of it on um, spot, and a third on short-term contracts. But they did seem very bullish. They do need to go and find cargo. It's not like it's all the, the, their customers are providing all of it. But they, yeah, they seem pretty confident and uh, very lovely, shiny new planes. They were very happy. Peyton, are you impressed by Merce's strategy? Yeah, well, what I'm hearing on the market over here, it's, it, they were somewhat pushed into it by their customers. In so far, the customers want the sort of sea freight capacity during the off season, and then they want the air freight in the peak season, and they want a one-stop shop solution. So we, I think it's tying up with what Alex was saying as well, but it's, it's being driven a little bit by their customers. And that's not just Mercy, it was uh, the other container companies going into the air freight market as well. I just wanted to add, there's one thing I'd, I'd heard from their um, suppliers of theirs, that they have incredibly high standards on emissions. And it's very difficult to work with Merce because they've got very, very strict KPIs on their emissions. And that was just one thing I wanted to sort of give them a little clap for. Well done, Merce. I, I thought you were going to say you were going to run a story saying shipping lines respond to customer needs, but um, maybe... Oh, wow. Well, well, that would be held on page, <laughs> wouldn't it? <laughs> Alex and Aime, Peyton Burnett, thanks for joining me today on the Lodestar podcast. Thank you very much, Mike. Thanks, Mike. I'd like to thank TAC Index, the Lodestar's air freight data provider, and Zenitor, our sea freight data supplier. Big thanks to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. And most of all, gratitude to you all for listening. We'll be back soon.